Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lara Hope Schwartz and Andrea Malkin Brenner about their book, How to College, What to Know Before You Go and When You're There. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. I wonder, oh, I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad to talk about this book. I think it's very timely, perhaps more timely than ever while people are really considering the decisions that they're making and how to prepare looking ahead. So before we jump into that, I wonder if we could start by having each of you tell us about yourself. Uh, Professor Schwartz, could we start with you, please? Sure. Um, My name is Lara Schwartz, and I teach at American University School of Public Affairs, where I founded and direct the Project on Civil Discourse. Um, I come to teaching by way of being a civil rights lawyer and advocate, um, and I tend to incorporate um, what I know of being a lawyer and someone who, you know, works to make change in the public good um, as a core function of my teaching and writing. Thank you. And Dr. Brenner, could you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, I am a private consultant. I work with high schools and high schoolers, uh, as well as uh, colleges, uh, faculty and staff. Um, And a lot of high school parents um, work with them in workshop format um, and um, write some articles, work specifically about the transitions from high school to college uh, and the challenges that many of our students face. Um, I'm a sociologist by training, um, and uh, I taught in the Department of Sociology at American University, where where Lara and I first met um, for 20 years, uh, and after that actually moved over from a faculty role to an administrative role where I uh, created and directed um, AU's first year experience uh, mandatory course uh, program. Um, And together, Lara and I were uh, 2019-2020 fellows for the National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement um, out of the University of California system. Thank you for sharing that. I wonder if we could circle back a little bit and have each of you talk a little bit about your own path to, to higher ed. Uh, Could we start with you, Professor Schwartz? Sure. Um, So I am a lawyer by training and um, came out of law school, clerked for a federal judge, which is um, something I definitely recommend to people. Um, It's a great way to be mentored and, um, you know, work with someone at the top of their career when you're just starting. Um, I came out of, I started in the law firms and went to uh, become a civil rights advocate at a organization called the human rights campaign in 2002 when I was just a couple of years out of law school and, um, did a variety of civil rights and public interest advocacy roles from there where my career moved from being primarily lawyering, particularly legislative lawyering, you know, drafting or or reviewing the meanings of bills, giving advice to, um, groups in a Congress about, you know, how to make change and transition somewhat to be oriented toward public engagement, um, public education, communication strategy, which are really 
bound up with legislative lawyering. Um, I had been interested in teaching really throughout my life. When I was in college, I spent about half of my time teaching students with disabilities to ride horses. I've been an adjunct professor at AU's law school um, early at my time at the Human Rights Campaign. But it had been somewhat backburnered. And then in 2013, when I was working at a place called Media Matters for America, a former HRC colleague who works at American University reached out to me and asked if I wanted to teach a constitutional law course. Um, and what I found was that I absolutely fell in love with teaching undergraduates. Um, it felt like a time in my career when I was ready to make change by helping younger people um, get their own footing in this field that I love and learn about something that I was passionate about. So after being an adjunct instructor, I set my mind to becoming a professor somehow and kept my eyes open for opportunities to teach full time, which happened um, in 2014. So I came to AU, um, um, you know, to teach um, as term faculty, and um, I've been there since and um, met Dr. Brenner and worked with her and founded a program and uh, co-wrote this book that we're here to talk about. So it's been, um, it's been a wonderful process. And thank you. And Dr. Brenner, can you tell us about your path to higher ed? Yes, absolutely. Um, I actually came through a sociology route. Uh, I took a sociology class back in high school, um, fell absolutely in love with it and knew that I wanted to, um, kind of focus on sociology and how sociology interacted with higher education um, in college. Um, and so I was a sociology major, double major with sociology and education um, as an undergraduate student, and then went on to get a master's degree in higher ed um, administration uh, and uh, focused on teaching curriculum, um, writing curriculum, teaching, teaching how to write curriculum, um, what always using a sociological lens. Uh, and for me, that was really this intersection of how the individual person connects with the larger, uh, world in which, in which they live. Um, and to me, that was, uh, really highlighted in every bit of work I did on college campuses. I originally had a dream of becoming a dean of students. Um, and um, after I got into that, my first couple of jobs in higher ed administration, realized that that student life component was very interesting to me. But where I felt most at home um, was every time I was in a college classroom. And when I was there and I was able to interact with students um, on an intellectual level, that just felt like home for me. And um, I spent a few years working at the American Council on Education, um, actually working, writing test questions uh, for the GED, the high school equivalency exam, and um, had an opportunity to begin my doctoral studies at AU in sociology, um, knowing that I was heading on a uh, professor track and, um, and did that. I, I had an opportunity at AU to move out of a tenure line track and into a professor of the practice track, which worked for me because my interest was fully in the student life and the teaching piece and not so much in uh, the publishing uh, and research piece. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I taught as a sociologist for 20 years uh, at AU and um, any opportunity I had to work with first-year students, um, I grabbed because that was that was really um, of most interest to me. 
And I was offered a, f- a few exciting opportunities in my time at AU in an administrative capacity. Um, and one of them was directing um, what AU calls a university college, which is their largest living learning community, where my office was actually in the first floor of a uh, 800 student uh, freshman residence hall. And um, then I also worked um, on the American University Experience, which is uh, our AU's first year uh, mandatory course. So um, really, for me, it was it was looking at higher education through a sociological lens. Uh, and um, it also afforded me the opportunity to meet my my partner in crime and my colleague, Lara Schwartz. So that is a beautiful segue into the backstory of how did you two meet and how did you two cook up the idea for this book and collaborate and create it? So I, um, this is Lara, I was um, an instructor in the university college uh, program that Andrea directed. And um, it was a wonderful program that enabled students to experience both um, a small seminar with uh, students who lived in the same residence hall and then experiential learning um, components, like seeing the great things in DC that connect with your school experience. So mine was constitutional law and we would go and meet, you know, congressional staff or meet people in a think tank or a legal organization or see, you know, the library of Congress. Um, And with Andrea as the director, she was very hands-on and also incredibly helpful and wise. And um, I really very quickly realized that if I wanted to do my job very well, um, she would be the person to go to when I had sticky challenges from the ways that students might not be um, adapting very well and to the college transition and the college life to things like people not treating each other very well or maybe not, you know, kind of connecting with me very well. Um, And I accurately saw that um, Andrew was the right person to ask. Um, Once we started communicating about some of these issues that we might see in a classroom or in a living learning community, it became very clear that we both, both had a passion for helping students make this transition and really thrive in this um, environment of college, but also that we were um, running into the same um, issues and challenges often, and that there was this well of knowledge and commitment and, you know, common sense that was maybe unwritten that deserved to be shared um, outside of even just the, the programs we were working in. And I would add that what what I found um, very much in Lara that I also saw in myself was we were both professors, and Lara continues to be a professor um, who who did more than just teach. Uh, we really connected with our students. We opened our own homes to our students, invited them for you know Thanksgiving. Um, we we saw students through personal struggles, um, health struggles, mental health struggles, um, and that's something that we sort of prided ourselves in, but also connected us because what we realized were students were sometimes failing um, in our academic classes but not because they were ill-prepared for the academic rigor. It was because of something maybe so small as um, having a cold um, or having um, and not really knowing how to take care of themselves physically. Um, somebody who wasn't eating well or wasn't sleeping well, or maybe a first-year student who was having trouble um, 
having discussions with their roommate, even getting along with with their housemates. Um, and what we realized that it was really affecting them. Um, and we started talking at length about uh, how important it was for students to learn not just how to survive, but to really thrive um, in their first semester of college. And the book really gives students things to think about before they leave for college, skills they can start practicing at home, uh, partly to know how to do them, but I think also partly to understand that they can. They can handle these things themselves. Um, And one of the things the book does is it kind of walks that line between kind of the firm kind of uh, voice of you need to be accountable and the gentle voice of it's okay, you're going to mess up. That's part of how this all works. Give yourself grace. How did you develop that tone? I mean, I think that's very similar to our approaches, both of us to our students um, in a college environment. Um, We both tend to be very clear and explicit about our expectations. And I think we both tend to say, you know, I I have these rules, I have these reasons behind them, but you're a human being and so am I. Um, For me, this is something that, you know, came out of how I saw being a manager before I became to, before I became a professor, before I came to higher ed, I had three basic rules of, of working with me. I'm going to, you know, set and explain uh, high and consistent expectations and I'm going to enforce them. I'm going to give you the tools that you need to meet those expectations, including the information about what they are. Um, and I'm going to recognize that you're a human being and be frank about the fact that I am too. Um, and I think that three-pronged approach, I'm, I'm proud to say, makes me someone who's good to work with as a colleague. And I think it's really similar to what um, we might look for with students, you know, there are expectations to meet and some of them are, are, you know, are very firm and unshakable. Um, but it all happens in the context of we make mistakes, we're works in progress, emergencies happening. Um, so there's a degree of, you know, meet me halfway, be communicative, be professional, be, um, be accountable. Uh, but with the understanding that there just isn't such a person as someone who never makes mistakes. And there isn't such a person as, you know, who, um, who never has an emergency, who never falls on a challenging time, be that, be it that cold that, that Andrea mentioned or, or worse, or the kinds of things that, that do befall students from family illnesses to, um, you know, personal tragedies, injuries, um, the works. And I would add that uh, the more that Lara and I spoke about our shared experiences, um, and again, we've worked you know, together with thousands of first-year students over several decades at this point, we realized um, and were very surprised uh, at the beginning of the writing of this book when we really started to delve in and see what existed in the field. We realized that most of the books out there on transitioning to college were either you know, A, about the application process, um, sort of how to get into college, but um, they ended there. And uh, I know I can speak for both of us to say the hard part of the transition to college, you know, begins when applications are in and your acceptance letters have already come. It's not the application, that's the actual challenge. And the second uh, group of books that we saw out on the market uh, were books about the transition to college, but they were very much parent-facing. 
And uh, that was just overwhelming uh, and surprising to us because uh, we know from the experience of being college insiders that once you walk onto uh, a campus, the, the faculty, the staff, the administration on that campus is going to view you as an adult, regardless of how you view yourself. And uh, we felt students really needed to understand uh, what was expected of them um, as young adults on a college campus. And so what we decided to do was to really write the first student-facing sort of practical guide about college transition using our own experience. Uh, and so it's very important to us that this is student-facing and that all of the activities and discussion prompts that we encourage students to have with their parents, they're all focusing on that first-year student. And I'd just like to add to um, what Andrea said, which is all absolutely right. It not only is college, you know, is is the application process, um, you know, not the hard part, not the college transition, but the things that get you accepted to college, um, they make you qualified to attend college, but it's not the same as being prepared. Um, there is a disconnect between being able, for example, to get a certain standardized test score, build your resume um, with the support, you know, of family often in school and the kinds of things that, that one does need to do um, as their own boss, um, um, as a college student. So um, we saw that as a, as, as a gap, not only in the market, but also in looking at our own students who had been so focused on this for, in some cases, lifelong quest to be, um, to be accepted to a, a competitive college and then, um, um, and then not, not quite knowing, you know, okay, what's next, what's now. And so this book really is what's next. You mentioned students being accepted to a competitive college. There's kind of a mindset that students develop that it's not okay to ask for help. Uh, if you've made it to this competitive place, showing weakness, such as saying to the professor, I'm actually not attending class or turning this in because, you know, I live in communal living and everybody's passed around the cold and now I've got it. They keep thinking they've got to figure it out themselves. And when they don't, perhaps because of feelings of shame that they really shouldn't be carrying, like I screwed up. I, it's too late. I can't fix this now. Um, do you find that students come to you for help? Uh, do they know when to come to you for help? Or did you sort of write this book more for the students who never ask for help? So I think there's two kinds of, of at least two kinds of not, uh, not knowing what help to need, and at least two. And, and this, the, book, the book is for both. So there are students who have had enormously supportive um, parents, families, school environments where you know, if they, uh, if they got sick, you know, a parent could say, okay, we're going to coordinate to, you know, to let people know and get your assignments or, or the school would be very much on that. Um, and that, that transition from this person, this, this point person, the family to you as the college student, you know, who's the resource now, um, is, is, is something new. And then there are also students who, who arrive at college having actually had to be enormously resourceful and resilient and just sort of putting their head down and getting through all kinds of challenges without that many resources, whether at the school level or the home level, because they're, you know, looking after siblings or working a job to earn their college money, et cetera. And this is for those students, too. Um, 
there are all kinds of things to learn from what it takes to communicate with a professor about your reasonable needs, such as, you know, an extension if you're if you're actually quite ill, to who on campus is actually the point person to help you with some of those other needs from your healthcare to um, support with writing or, um, you know, tutoring in the core courses that, that have, you know, with, with which many students struggle and, and for which most schools are, are doing, you know, some kind of supplemental education. Um, so these are, these are two different ways to be not ready. And then of course, college does have an enormous amount of uh, supports and services for students, um, but they're going to be very different from what students are used to having available, regardless of the resource level of their school. Whether it's you know research librarians or chaplains, these are things that are new to your experience when you enter a four-year college. Yeah, and if I, I love that, Lara, that makes that makes a lot of sense the way you said it. I, I would add one more piece that that is sort of woven into our book, which is. Um, in high school, or maybe we could even say K through 12 education, students have sort of been taught that the smartest kid in the class knows everything, uh, doesn't need to ask questions. Um, but in fact, a college professor encourages questions. And that's a hard mindset for a, for a new college student uh, to come to after coming out of high school, right? Um, there, there is... There is an idea that if you asked questions, it meant you were ill-prepared in high school. And in college, it means that you're trying to delve in and learn at the next level. So, so sometimes we really do need to sit down and teach first-year students um, how to ask questions, um, both in their academic world and in their sort of health and wellness world. One of the things that you say in the book is you're not an imposter or an expert be an explorer. Can you both uh, share from your perspective what an explorer mindset would look like for listeners? I can, I can think of an example uh, right off the top of my head and something I certainly experienced as a college professor. I would have a student who might come to my office hours, you know, even tearful, saying, I, I, I'm so overwhelmed. I, I thought I was uh, going to be a business student, and I just fell in love with this other academic discipline because I had a core class, for example, maybe in, I don't know, anything, economics, chemistry, whatever it might be. And they saw themselves as a fa- self as a failure because they were not following on the track that they had set out for themselves, or maybe their family or their uh, school had set out for them. And um, they really were of, uh, of that mindset that um, an interest or a passion that they were exploring was, was something that was completely overwhelming and something that they had to push away. And to me, that's a really important piece of uh, the college learning experience. It's teaching that student that, um, in fact, this is what being an explorer means, keeping your eyes open, um, learning new things, um, taking a new focus. Um, and seeing that not as a failure, but as a way of, of reaching adulthood. I think that's absolutely right. I would say for me, I, I do these, um, even before uh, uh, this year of online learning, I always use the online um, learning system to ask my students a little bit about themselves and their expectations for my courses before we begin. It's a way to start to get to know them. And I ask them to let me know their personal goals around um, their academics, such as their argumentation, research, et cetera. And time and again, I have students say, I want to learn to support my opinions with evidence. 
And I time and again tell them that sounds good. Uh, but what, what we need to do is think about building your opinions from evidence. Um, I think there are things that we know, we just know, you know, we just know in our heart what foods we like or what movies bore us, things like that. Um, but there's a lot of stuff and it's most of what we study in college that we're going to learn based on inquiry and study. Maybe we've formed a first impression of what we like. Maybe it's partisan, maybe it's a gut thing. Um, but an explorer mindset would say, you know, my first, my first instinct is a question. And my first question is what do I need to know? Uh, to become familiar with the landscape of this thing that I'm looking at here, be it be it economics or policy or sociology or whatever it might be. Um, and that's a hard one for students who each of whom is is their own you know personal publishing house with with a social media feed um, when they come to school. Um, but it's a really important one and it's one that you know we hope that they're working on. You've both used the word transition several times, and, and I love that we're, we're using that word. In the book, you seem to urge students to look at the entire first year as a transition, to look at the first semester, yes, as a transition, but the whole first year as a transition for some of the reasons that you've just mentioned. Um, but in a time period when students are more than ever worried about what it costs as far as financially and opportunity cost to spend any time at college, they maybe now more than ever feel pressure to make sure that first year is as productive as the fourth year. Can you talk to students listening to why it's actually essential for that entire first year to be this exploratory transition in order to make all the years productive? Yeah, I, I think the, one of the biggest challenges I face when talking to first-year students and, and their parents is expecting to um, really being able to be, for them to really be able to see the next four years uh, by maybe October of uh, of their first uh, semester of college. And uh, the first year is not a time to to look four years out. Um, we actually discourage students, um, with some exceptions, but we discourage most students from really spending a lot of time in the career center their first semester of college because they need to be focusing on exploring. Um, and that's not, not only on their academics, but on their personal growth. So um, I, I, I would say that identity is something that we are encouraging our students to, to focus on their first year. Um, certainly, there's no reason not to dream um, and there's no reason not to plan. But as you mentioned before, uh, Christina, Knowing that um, mistakes are a huge part and a very normative part of the first year experience. Um, so that's something we not only encourage, embrace mistakes, uh, know that they're going to come, but be prepared for dealing with them. So that might be everything from um, emergency preparedness, um, telling an 18 or 19 year old, you know, have a plan for the first time you lose something of importance to you. Might that, that might be your student ID, it might be um, something as dramatic as a laptop or a wallet. Um, and it's not really what's going to happen to you because we know something is going to happen. That's, that's a typical part of a college transition, but be prepared to handle what comes your way. Um, and we talk a lot in the book about how preparation um, is something that high school students are actually very familiar with. They know that they need to, um, you know, practice their saxophone or uh, practice their soccer skills um, in order to be an expert in their um, in their field. 
And uh, that's something that we encourage them to do with the transitional skills to college as well. Um, and so our book really focuses on different activities, different conversation prompts, and it's all focused on that preparation for the first year and uh, looking at transition and struggle as a normative part of it. I think um, as well, you know, a transition means a great start. Um, so there are some concrete examples of the kind of things that I'd say not to do in the transitional year. So tell students not to do an internship in that first year. Um, in your first semester in college, and this is a very different approach than high school, in your first semester in college, you're going to start the first several weeks with mostly reading and without assessments that give you a sense of how, how am I doing with this reading? Am I What kind of grade am I earning in this course? And it might be a month into school before you actually get that reality check when you get your first set of you know papers, midterms, tests, things like that. Um, if you've taken on some significant work time outside of school, the chances are you'll have no breathing room to adjust your study schedule um, and your writing schedule and your homework doing schedule to reflect what the actual needs and requirements of college are. And you could very much blow that first semester um, in a way that that is reflected on your transcript and, and, and ultimately doesn't help you with your education um, because of the decision to jump into that very second year activity of an internship um, early on. Um, so it's a matter of understanding that everything that you're doing when you get to college, you're, you're in the process of learning to do. And you've got to start with a foundation, which is going to start with academics and then such extracurriculars as sort of bolster that and help you thrive and explore, but don't overwhelm that process of, of becoming a competent and ready college student. And I, I would add that one of the ways you can become a competent and ready college student is to ask for feedback. Um, and that means attending office hours, um, as frightening as that might be. It's fascinating to look at the research and realize that across the country, um, college students don't really start attending office hours unless it is insisted um, as part of a grade um, until their sophomore spring. And that really puts them at a disadvantage because high school teachers have given frequent feedback um, and you may not get uh, feedback at all from a college professor until a first paper is due uh, maybe four weeks into a semester. So asking for feedback is a really wonderful way uh, to help um, with their own, it's for students to help with their own transition. Um, and it's very appropriate to ask uh, faculty for feedback. We are, as faculty, we're thrilled to give it when a student comes to our office and says, you know, I just want to get a sense of how you think I'm doing. Um, you know, this might be what I'm struggling with. How, how do you think I can improve um, in my in my class uh, discussions? How much I um, volunteer my, myself, um, and that's something that we we encourage uh, as faculty, and we certainly as authors encourage our students to do. I love that you brought that up, and I wonder if we can extend that part of the conversation a bit because it is such an underused resource, and I think professors feel frustrated by that. I'm here. I've got my office hours, I'm available to you, and students are so hesitant to come. Since you both have the window into uh, the first year experience and, and really sort of the maybe false beliefs students have about what they can and can't do, um, can, can we go ahead and demystify and unpack this and, and 
hopefully get students using office hours productively and often. As professors and as people who guide first-year students, what would be sort of your dream uh, wish list for students to start using office hours to do? How soon should they get in there? What kinds of things should they be asking? And as professors um, tune in and listen to this, um, you know, they'll be prepared then that students are showing up now. Here, here they are. So one thing that students can do, and this can start even with an email, and in our book we talk about um, practicing writing a professional email um, so that you're putting your best foot forward. Um, but for example, I've already had students in my spring 2021 courses who are registered for spring 2021 um, write me to ask if there are readings that would be helpful to have read in advance, that it, you know, my course sounds hard or advanced, or they've never done, you know, something like my course before. Is there, is there something they could do in advance to be ready, which is a great question. Um, once, particularly for a first year student, you're there, um, there are a number of things you can do. You can look at your syllabus and see the layout of what's going to be expected that semester and maybe ask, you know, what does a good paper look like? Um, I know that our first thing is going to be a midterm. Um, how can I be ready? Um, you can ask the professor if, for example, if there's someone who cold calls or asks questions in class, you know, what kinds of questions are you going to ask? I want to make sure that I'm getting the things out of my reading that, that I should. Um, sometimes it can be as a thought partner. If you find one of the readings uh, provocative or interesting or troubling, and you want to explore it in a, in a way that, that it didn't happen in the classroom, coming in and saying, you know, I'd love to talk about Tuesday's reading. Um, so, and all of these um, can be welcome. I will say that when we're in the, uh, particularly, this is possible actually for Zoom office hours now, but I'd say particularly when we're, we're safe again to be, um, to, to be together, that I often also encourage my students to get to know a friend in class and come to office hours together if they feel that that might bolster them or they just like to to share, to share that time together. And then they can both get to know a colleague in their, in their educational um, community um, and get to know me too. And I, I would add to that, um, just like we would encourage students to learn how to write a professional email and reach out to professors before the semester begins. And it sounds like Lara's students are already doing that. Um, we'd really encourage students to go ahead and read their professor's uh, bio, their CV, their syllabus online uh, before walking into class that first day. Again, that's that's the preparation we're talking about. Um, they should be really careful uh, about asking questions where they can find the answers themselves. So, you know, please don't ask uh, your professor, where is your office hour, when clearly that would be on the syllabus. Uh, so communicating constantly back to students, it's on the syllabus, take a look. Um, I would say connecting with TAs, uh, teaching assistants, undergrad and graduate teach, uh, teaching assistants is really important for first year students because uh, those are often a window into that professor and how they're viewing their class. Um, and then something that we talk about a lot in the book, and I certainly talked about, I know Lara does as well with, with students, is looking at all of their assignment deadlines in all of their classes and getting them into some sort of planner, whatever planner works for them, hard copy or electronic, um, right away. Um, that's something that uh, they are often ill-prepared for when they come to college, and it's a lot to balance for maybe five, even six classes with lots of different deadlines 
often in high school, especially in private schools, those teachers are working together so that their um, assignments don't conflict with each other. Um, but in college, it's a totally different world. And uh, the college professors are not communicating uh, with each other about when assignments are due. And so for a student to really be uh, figuring out what their semester looks like and planning ahead. One of the things that you you keep stressing in, in the book is that it's college is really a time of adulting. Students are plunked into immediate adulting. Um, but you say in the book, a big part of adulting is seeking and accepting support from others, from experts like health providers to emotional supporters, such as friends, family, and affinity groups. And I know from both of you from our uh, emails prior to taping that you're both really passionate about the section in the book about taking care of yourself. Um, and so, uh, Professor Schwartz, you had wanted to talk about the importance of taking care of your physical and mental health. And how can students really focus on that? And where, when is it time to uh, seek help? And what sort of maintenance can they do? And where is the resource on campus for that? Who are the experts who are there who maybe have a totally different title uh, than you're expecting? And so you don't know that's what they do. You don't know to go ask them. Um, thank you. So uh, there are um, there are a lot of things packed in there. So I will say um, thing one is in advance. Um, I think that some degree of, of self-care in college has to do with time management. Um, so if there is a thing that made you happy and kept you grounded uh, before you became a college student, maybe you exercise, maybe you listen to or perform music. Um, making time for it in your schedule saying, I'm going to hang on to that. Or if it's something that's not accessible to you in college, you know, you were a varsity athlete and that's not what you're going to do now, figuring out how to fit into your schedule, the time and saying, you know, I am going to put a calendar reminder. This is my time that I exercise. This is my time that I sleep. This is my time that I contact um, my best friend by text to say hello so building in time for those things that are positively sustaining, um, there's a degree of checking in with oneself. In the book, we talk about the difference between experiencing normative stress um, and, um, and distress. Um, so understanding the difference are, is it harder for you to enjoy the things that you've enjoyed before? Is, is being productive and functional a challenge to you in a way that surprises you? Um, do the people around you see that you're diff you know that there's a difference in their concern being open with them and yourself about that? In terms of the contacts on campus, this is something that's part of, you know, we have a checklist for students in the book that we really encourage students to go through and do that prep in advance. It's everything from learning about what the resources are on campus in terms of mental health counseling, in terms of, um, spiritual help and, um, with, you know, like chaplains and, and, and resources like that to what is the access to the healthcare center on campus? If there is one, is it an integrated facility? That's like a clinic for students. Is it part of the university's hospital? How does one access it? And, um, understanding, um, understanding the mechanisms of access, like your insurance, having a conversation with family members, do I have insurance through you? How does that work? Am I utilizing an insurance plan um, through the school? How does that work? 
These are all things that we can find out um, in advance and really need to before, let's say, you're sick or injured. And some of our recommendations include things like making one's own doctor and dentist appointments, refilling one's own prescriptions, so that a student really has a bit of experience with that kind of self-care um, while they're at home and before they've experienced this um, you know, stressful but exciting move. Um, so you're not trying this for the first time in a new place. And Dr. Brenner, you were interested in talking uh, about wellness and safety. Do you want to share some thoughts about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, there's so many different parts of wellness, uh, and most campuses do have some sort of wellness center. Uh, they may have different different names, um, but that includes everything from uh, disordered eating to sleeping to stress reduction and recreational and safety measures. That all falls under wellness in many college campuses. Um, so I think really what's important uh, in terms of wellness and uh, talking to first-year students is that for the first time, they are going to be the ones responsible for their own physical and mental health care. Um, Lara had mentioned before, if a student in high school was sick, a, a parent uh, might very likely write the note to excuse them from school. Uh, there might be somebody at that high school that was making sure that they were kept up to date with assignments. And... Um, Really, that's up to the student in college, and uh, preparing to be that person who takes on those tasks is a is a wonderful thing to do at the end of high school, or certainly in the summer before uh, going to college. So, eating is eating is a great example. Um, you know, do some research in advance, students. You know, take a look and see if the residence hall you're about to move into has a kitchen. Uh, does this kitchen provide any um, cooking essentials? Um, will you have a microwave and a fridge in your room? Most college campuses uh, do, do have that. Again, thinking about mindful eating, that certainly begins before college. So understanding how to read um, nutrition labels is a really important thing for high school students to do. Understanding which foods and drinks work for your body and which don't. Um, and uh, this something that we see in a lot of first-year students, sort of that the dangers of late-night eating, not just for the weight gain, but for um, sort sort of for the 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 health benefits overall. Um, so that that would be one kind of look at eating, which is certainly a part of wellness. Um, and I would also say sleeping is a huge one. Um, getting enough sleep is really hard to do in college uh, when you're in high school. You might be the last one to go to sleep, but your house is usually pretty quiet when you settle down. And it's very different for students in large residence halls that might be noisy. Um, and so making sure that you have a conversation with your roommate or roommates uh, about the time you need to shut down, learning to uh, stay away from technology for at least 30 minutes before bed. Um, one thing we actually, it sounds almost funny, but something that we talk about in the book is, is to practice napping uh, because there is a proper way to nap uh, put out by the American Pediatric Association. You know, 20 to 30 minutes before 4 p.m. is the proper way to nap. And um, that's something that, that college students really should know how to do before they come onto campus uh, so you don't conk out for, for four hours in the afternoon and then you're up until five in the morning. Um, and one more thing that I would add is sort of, reducing stress. And uh, part of reducing stress comes with understanding your priorities. So um, thinking about things and conversations that you can have with parents and families is a wonderful way to reduce stress. A lot of first-year students stress 
uh, that's reported to faculty and to staff comes from um, a disconnection in communication with their families. So an expectation that a family might have, for example, a family is expecting you to attend um, morning mass uh, and you had no intention of doing that. Uh, Maybe you wanted to think outside of Catholicism when you got to campus. Um, But that's a conversation that we encourage students and families to have the summer before they come to campus. So uh, those, the communication with their family is, is a little bit uh, cleaner and safer. Um, Talking about things that are very, very much in uh, parents' minds, which is safety on campus, those conversations, if they can be had before the student reaches campus, um, we can really reduce the stress level of first-year students. And there is a lot of guidance, particularly in the beginning of the book, about how to have productive conversations, students listening with your parents, with your extended family with your friendship groups about what you are going to need in order to go off to college, able to fully explore what's there for you and have them know that you care about them, but you're going to have to set up new parameters and new communication methods and time schedules. And there's a lot of very helpful um, advice on how to do that because I know for students listening, they're not going to want to burn any bridges at home. So it's helpful that the book gives really clear guidance. Another thing the book really stresses, in addition to having important conversations, um, is the importance on being a good listener. You say in several places in the book that one of the best things you can do at college is go in prepared to be a really good listener with a focus on listening. And you, you break good listening down into two key tips. Um, there's more tips than that, but we'll, we'll do the two key that I saw. One was listening with civility and one was listening productively. In the few minutes we have left, can you talk about why listening is going to be such an important skill for success at college and why these two goals to have in mind, to listen with civility and to listen productively, are going to be the key? Well, I think most of us who look back on our time in college, if we attended some time ago, and a lot of those of us, um, myself included, who teach, know that the huge percentage of what is valuable, of what helps us grow and learn and become in college is the conversations that we have with peers, not just professors. Um, These can be eye-opening. You're in a community that's very likely to be larger, more diverse, um, connected in more ways, because especially if it's residential than before. And it's, it's a hard skill to learn, but it's some of the greatest yield you'll get on your time is finding out how the people around you came to have the views that they do, how they're processing the same assigned readings that you're processing, the same news that you're, um, that you're reading and learning. Um, but we don't just we're not just really actually taught that much to do that earlier in our lives. We're not always, um, some students are, you know, maybe if you come in as a team athlete and you're used to kind of looking around the field and seeing who's open and things. But for a lot of us, we've been involved in this solitary endeavor of just trying to achieve and prove and show what we can do. Um, but the listening is enormously important. Um, as for listening productively, You know, I do this exercise with my students where I put them in pairs and I say, you're going to speak for three minutes and the partner is just going to listen, not interrupt, 
not ask follow-up questions, just listen. And then we do, a, and then we're going to, and then afterward, you're not going to ask a question. You're actually going to have to mirror back what the person said, you know, and, and, and assure, you know, that you've captured what the person was saying to you and then clarify if you got it wrong and then learn a little bit about that switch places and then engage in some reflection on what that was like. And I do it, you know, with most of my classes. And what I find is that students come to school unused to sitting and listening for three minutes to appear without jumping in. And I also find I, this happens all the time. I ask, did you have an objection or a question or a, but, but, but feeling at some point early in your friend's whole entire three minutes with the floor that actually ended up getting addressed and answered later in the whole entire three minutes? It's always yes. And we talk about that. We talk about what it means that our inclination is to sort of lean forward and listen to rebut or listen to respond as opposed to listening to comprehend. Um, and what we find is there's an enormous amount of learning that shuts off when we're listening to respond and stays on if we're really listening to understand. Um, and then what I ask students to do is take that lesson about listening to understand and utilize it as a building block for their communication, communicating to be understood, not to win, not to shame, not to dominate, not to own the libs or, you know, shame the, the others, um, to communicate. Um, that process, listening to understand and communicating to be understood, is just about the entirety of college, whether it's your classes, your residential life, your work with the career office. Um, it's listening and communicating. It's understanding and being understood. Um, and we're not primed and taught to do it very well, but it's, it's a learnable skill and the, and the return on it educationally and personally is very, very high, I find. Dr. Brenner, would you like to add anything? No, I, I think Lara nailed it there. Thank you. That was really a lovely answer. Um, I wonder in the few minutes we have left, if you'd each like to share what you hope listeners will take away from listening to this conversation. Obviously, we hope they will take away the importance to get the book because there's so much in it that we that we haven't touched on. Uh, this is really a companion conversation to the book, and we know people will get so much out of having the book both before they go to college and taking it with them to college because it will continue to provide reference help for them there. Um, so let's start with you, Professor uh, Schwartz. What's one, one takeaway you'd really like to leave students with? They can absolutely do this and enjoy college. And because this time that we're you know, recording is, is when some students are getting their, their good news and some getting their bad news they feel about early decision, I'll say that the things that, that we're sharing here, you know, they're, they're equally applicable to whichever college you end up at. You have not very much control over what some admissions department um, thinks of you, really. Um, but you have enormous control over what you can make of the time that you spend at the college you end up attending. And um, that preparation can really make anywhere you go, um, you know, the kind of college of your dreams, because you're the one, you're the one, um, handling those dreams and, and making them happen. So I hope that people focus on that. 
Thank you. And Dr. Brenner. Sure. I think I, I'd like to um, end with talking about the definition of adulting. And um, I think it's a very different definition um, of adulting if you're talking to high school or almost college students versus actual adults. Um, and in this case, when we're talking about parents of college students, if you talk to a parent of a college student um, or a high school student, we'd say, what does adulting mean? What does it mean to be adult? I think that they would probably say, um, they would think back to times when they've been needy, um, and maybe that would be an illness or a death in the family, and how they reach out for help. And they realize that adulting isn't necessarily doing it all on their own, but it's having a support system. Um, and that might be family, that might be friends, uh, that might be experts um, or professionals in, in their area. Um, and adulting for high school and almost college students is a very different definition. If you ask that group, they'll say, uh, probably they come from two camps. One, it's a mystery to me. I have no idea. It's big and scary, and it's something I don't understand. Um, but the other group, and it's probably a larger group, would be high school and almost college students who say adulting means doing it on your own. And, um, and I, that's, that's a real misconception. And I think it's a, it's, it's a way we've shortchanged high school students, but we haven't really taught them what adulting means. And when they get to campus, um, they are not going to be expected to go from a dependent to an independent person overnight. There is a support staff of faculty, of staff, of peers who are ready to welcome them and ready to support them. Um, they absolutely have to know how, have to, know how to, answer, to ask questions, but they don't have to have all of the questions themselves answered already. Um, and hopefully over the next four years, they will come to the same definition of adulting that their parents have, um, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the true adult is someone who surrounds themselves with people who can support them. Um, and I just, I just feel that that's something I wish I could teach every high school student now. We're here for you. We've got you. And uh, just ask questions and uh, we'll help you find some answers. I really appreciate everything both of you have shared today about how to make the transition to college and the discussion of your book, How to College. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and I hope you will please join us again.